0: confession we're going to be going through chapter three today and chapter three of our confession is of God's decree all right now to define that for us a little bit uh, I'm actually going to use the catechism the Baptist catechism which is based on the Westminster I feel like I always have to say that but that's okay question 10 says this what are the decrees of God So we're thinking about God's decree. What are the decrees of God? Listen carefully to these very carefully formed words. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose. According to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Okay? that's it. Very dense statement, and that's kind of opening up what we're going to be reading in the confession today. And so, as we consider the eternal purpose of God, where according to the counsel of his own will, he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass for his own glory, um, I want us to notice first the logic that we have in the confession. So, we've considered the Holy Scripture, which is the ground of everything that we believe about God. Because our own sinful human minds cannot derive the necessary information out of nature in order to be saved. We can learn many things from nature. But we cannot look at it and know what we need in a mediator or that we even have a mediator. And so God has given us the Holy Scripture in order for sinful men and women like you and me to have our minds conform to the truth and reality of who God is and what He desires for us as creatures to do. Okay? And in chapter two, we considered who that God is as carefully as we could. We considered him in all of his negative attributes. Okay? What I I mean by that is that when we see, and I need to watch my time, but uh, when we see anything as an imperfection, okay, we, we don't attribute that to God, but we negate that, such as we're finite, God is infinite. We are time bound. God is eternal. He is without time. Not time bound. Okay? We are confined to space. But God is immense. Not confined to space. Right? We considered him superlatively. That is, that when anything in the creature that is good, God is the best of that. The most of that. We can be holy to some degree. But God is most holy. Right? We can be righteous in some way. God is most righteous. We can be good. God is the most good. He is goodness and love in himself. And as we considered who he is in his person, even in eternity, before the creation of the world, now we come into the section of the can everything come to be. Okay? I walked in today in somewhat humorous manner, humorous to me at least. Joe um, was very sleepy. And we were talking and Joe said something trying to figure out the computer and he said, why am I here? And I think he meant, why am I here? Why is this computer, why am I here on the computer, right? But the question is relevant to what we're talking about. Why is there a creation as opposed to not a creation? Why is there something in this world rather than nothing? And the ultimate answer for that is that God eternally decreed, purposed, that this would take place, Okay? Now, as we consider that, there's many things that are going to be very difficult. In fact, I would say the decree of God is maybe the second most difficult doctrine for us to consider behind considering the Trinity in God's person, okay? So there's going to be a lot of questions that we deal with, and today, I want to briefly read through chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3, verses, paragraphs 1 through 3, and... We're going to go through three points, okay? I want us to, as I read through this, look for these three points. First, that God's decree is fulfilled necessarily, but not by compulsion, okay? That is, God's decree is fulfilled infallibly. It will always come to pass, but he doesn't compel his creatures to do his will, against their will. Second, I want us to consider that God's decree is free, that God is the most free being... ...and His decree of everything that comes to pass... ...isn't contingent upon His creation. And thirdly, I want us to consider that His decree is universal. It encompasses everything that should ever come to pass. Okay. So, reading these three paragraphs... ...quickly, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity... ...by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will... Freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. Nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In which appears His wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing His decree. Paragraph 2, although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet he hath not decreed anything because he foresaw it in the future, or as that would come to pass upon such conditions. In paragraph 3, we're going to be dealing with this more in depth next week. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his own glory, some men and angels are predestinated... ...or foreordained to eternal life... ...through Jesus Christ... ...to the praise of his glorious grace... ...others being left to act in their sin... To their, con- ...to their just condemnation... ...to the praise of his glorious justice. Okay? So... ...we see here... first and foremost... ...what I want us to have... ...I'm, just, I'm not going to go through line by line of this... ...because it's not how my mind works... ...and I think it would be somewhat dull... ...to try to see me fumble around to do that... I want us to see first that God's will is necessarily fulfilled, and that is infallibly fulfilled. Okay. Sorry for this. God's will is necessarily and infallibly fulfilled. And that is because God's decree, the purpose that he has to bring all things to pass through his decree, is immutable, it's unchangeable, just as God is, and it is unbreakable. And we're going to go through a lot of Scripture. It's going to be a carpet bomb. But the reason I'm doing this, okay, when we pay attention to the Word of God read today, is that it would be a solid fact in all of our minds that God really does ordain everything that comes to pass. Okay? And this decree, first of all, is necessarily fulfilled because it's immutable and infallible. Turn with me to Isaiah. <coughs> Chapter 46. These two texts are the prime texts. Isaiah 46 And then we'll go to Ephesians chapter 1, Isaiah 46. The strength and the universality of the language used by the Bible to describe the decree of God. I'm going to read from verse 8, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Notice, remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember, the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Notice, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, or we could say from eternity, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That is, God's counsel from all eternity is unchanging. He declares the end from the beginning. And it's not because God is only so wise as to foresee what's going to take place. Right? Because notice, at the end of verse 10, he says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is the one that makes it take place and makes it to stand. No man can break God's eternal purpose or frustrate his will. As we read in the Psalms... No man can say to God, what have you done? Ephesians chapter 1, again. Ephesians chapter 1, again, the second primary text that we see, which is actually quoted in the confession, in part, in what we just read. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. God's decree is fulfilled infallibly because it is immutable and unbreakable. And notice, verse 5 and verse 11, talking about us being elected, first and foremost, in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Not according to the purpose of our will, but according to the purpose of His will. Now look at verse 11 with me. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance... "...having been predestined according to the purpose of Him... ...notice, who works all things... ...according to the counsel of His will." All things are worked according to the counsel of God's will. There's nothing excluded from that. God works everything in this world... ...and it is unbreakable. Three more texts to show the immutable and unbreakableness of God's will... ...and then we'll continue... God's will is immutable and unbreakable, and we see this again in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter fourteen. Notice verse twenty-six. This is talking about judgment of God. God says, "This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is outstretched out over all the nations." For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? And what's the answer we're supposed to give? No one. God's purpose to do this thing, and nothing can annul it. Psalm 33, Psalm and Proverbs, and we'll continue. Psalm 33. And again, I just want us to notice the strength of the language that the Bible uses when it talks about God's counsel and His decree. Notice verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Right? So, what does that say about man's counsel? It doesn't always come to pass. It's mutable. It's changeable. But God's is unbreakable. He brings it to pass. And lastly, Proverbs 19. To show that God's, all of God's counsel, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly by His own will. 19, verse 21 Again, contrasting the counsel of man the counsel of God, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Okay, And there are many, many other scriptures that we're going to go through today. But what I want us to see foremost is that God's decree takes place infallibly in this world. But what constantly comes through sinful human minds like ours is like in Romans chapter 9. Well, then who can resist his will? Why does God charge me with fault if everything just happens according to his decree, right? And we consider that God somehow made the world and he set it in place and we're just robots in this system if God's decree is true. But that's absolutely not the case. If you notice in the confession, the language, it's philosophical language that there's secondary causes that God works through to accomplish his purpose, And he does not violate the free will of the creature in order to do this, okay? That is, that God's decree takes place infallibly, but it doesn't take place compulsorily or by compulsion. God does not force any sinner to sin at any time, right? Now, while that's very difficult for our brains to understand, the Bible makes it very clear that that is, in fact, the case, the Bible makes it very clear that that is in fact the case. And I'm just going to give two witnesses in the New Testament to show you this. First in John 19. First in John 19. That is, God's will, while it does infallibly take place according to the counsel of His will, He does not compel any creature to go and sin. Okay? He does not compel. He does not overtake our bodies to do what we do not want to do. John 19 and verse 11. Notice this. Jesus talking to Pilate. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Okay? So we see the... The free will of Pilate here. The authority that is given to him. And Jesus also charges the creation with guilt that they gave me over to you. But we must realize that the crucifixion and deliverance of Jesus Christ was according to God's eternal plan. Now, this is the strongest text perhaps in the Bible. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And there there are many other texts we could bring up And we can do that in another lesson, but I've got many, many to go. And so we're trying to keep it short. Acts chapter 4, in verses 27 through 28. This is the church praying that God would protect the church. And they remember what happened at Christ's crucifixion. For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Notice verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is the worst sin that's ever been committed in the world. And while it's it's, it's hard to say from a human perspective, it's true. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is, is worse than the Holocaust. It's worse than the most terrible and egregious sin that we can imagine that is perpetrated against man. This is the Holy Son of God. Divinity in His body. Goodness itself killed by the hands of sinful men. And notice what's said there. We have man's culpability. They did it, and they weren't compelled to do it. They did it because their wicked hearts desired for it. But God, in mystery that I can't understand or explain, worked that evil sin to do the most good for this world and the most good for his people. It was according exactly to his plan that he said would happen. Okay? So, it is not compelled by man. And I think that if we have problems with this, this helps me. Brother Sam Waldron said this. If a man does what he wants to do, okay, if I'm not compelled to do something I don't want to do, but in fact, everything that I want to do, in no means can I say that that man is a prisoner or his free will is taken away. In fact, we say that that man did freely. Okay? So even though God in his decree decreed all things that would take place, and that includes sinful acts of humankind, we acted freely in our sin, because we desired to do that evil, okay? And this decree is not only fallible, and he doesn't compel through his decree, he doesn't overtake our free will, but God's decree, it's not contingent. Now, you might have noticed that with relationship to salvation. It it is not as if God ...put out all the options of creation... ...viewed them all through his analytical mind... ...and chose one that would have the least evil in it... ...so to speak, okay? It is not as if God foresaw this person would be saved... ...and therefore I'm going to elect them. Because that would make God's decree contingent... ...upon what would happen in history. And I just want to put it forward simply and shortly today... ...that that's a logical inconsistency... There was nothing that existed in when God decreed this. Okay, Not that he did it in a moment of time because it was an eternity. When God decreed this, nothing existed to condition God's decree. God's decree determines all things. Okay, Therefore, it can't be determined by the things that it's determining. And thirdly, this, ex- this supposes the existence of creation that's independent of God in some way. That it's not all from him and through him and to him, but it exists outside of him, and God's responding in some way and rubber stamping what was going to take place outside of his control. Okay? And that is not God's decree. It takes place freely for the glory of his own person. Okay? Now, lastly today, and we're going to go through a lot of scripture, so please try to stay with me. I want us to see that God's decree is universal. Okay? Next week we're going to look at... ...salvation of man... ...and the preterition. Okay, and I use that word... I'm going to, ...I'll am gonna. teach you what that means... ...the preterition of the damned. Okay, the salvation of man... ...is God freely choosing... ...out of sinful humanity to save... ...but preterition. Did anybody take Latin? Did you? Okay, to a praetor, I think... ...I'm saying? It means to... ...it's a tense? Okay, it means... ...that's okay... Yeah, we appreciate the, the confession. But I believe it's a tense, and it means to pass over something, okay? So there's two different views, but in, in my view, the Scripture teaches that God didn't positively ordain men for destruction, but he passed over them and let them fall in their own sin. We'll get to that next week. But all events come to pass. Through God's decree. And again, I'm helped by my brother Sam Walder and his notes on this. First, good and evil events. Okay? Good and evil events. Calamity and blessing. The Bible says that those both come from God's hand. Now turn with me (coughs) to Isaiah. I'm going to turn fast. If you can't keep up, that's okay. Please listen if you can't keep up. Okay? Isaiah. Chapter... 47. As I'm, as I'm trying to talk and flip, uh, you're probably going to get there before me anyway. So, Isaiah 45 and verse 7. All things, all events, whatsoever comes to pass, takes place by God's decree. And that includes good and evil events. Isaiah 45, 7. Notice what God says about Himself. I form light and create light. Darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It's a pretty universal statement. But lest we aren't convinced, Amos chapter 3 and verse 6, Amos chapter 3 and verse 6. And now we're in the now I might catch up to you in the minor prophets. Amos 3:6. Notice what's said here. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Okay, so what's being said there? A trumpet was used in those days to to warn people that there's an army invading, coming in, okay? And so the question is asked, is there ever a time when a trumpet is blown or the tornado siren go off and a person doesn't respond with fear in their heart to some degree or another, okay? Now, notice the next question. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The answer is no. Disaster does not come to a city unless the Lord has done it. And perhaps the strongest text is in the book of Job. Job is the book that should be primarily on our mind as we consider all these things as Job's life is a testimony to the decree of God taking place and everything taking place according to God's decree. His sovereignty caused immense suffering in Job's life for his good and for God's glory. And in this book, we get a a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak. But in Job 1.21, notice the strength of this language. And... I want us to notice, verse. I'm going to read 20 through 22. Notice verse 21, and then notice the strength of verse 22 along with the human statement. Then Job arose, after his sons had all died, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Now, let's, let's think about that. The Lord gave, we say amen, the Lord took away. We say, well, Satan did that in the text, right? Satan's the one that asked God to go out and kill these sons, right? But Job says, the Lord Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, notice verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. When he looked at all the calamity that took place against him... ...unbelievable suffering... ...he said the Lord did this... ...and the Bible tells us... ...he didn't say wrong. He didn't sin when he said that. Okay? Good and evil events are determined... ...by the decree of God. The affairs of nations... ...politics... ...are determined by the decree... ...of God. Uh, I'm just going to have a... Yeah, let's go. We're we're looking good on time. Daniel chapter 2... Again, if Job is a good book to go to for good and evil events, being under the sovereign hand of God, Daniel is certainly a good book to go to to be reminded that God's sovereign hand is over the political affairs of every nation on earth, no matter how wicked or profane. Daniel, chapter 2, and verse 21. I'm going to start in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Notice, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. We see political turmoil in this world, and we see a lot of it. We see terrible things perpetrated by government on every level. God is the one who raises up kings. God's the one who does that. And we could look at as well the 2 Kings chapter 5. As we've been going through this in our Wednesday night study, 2 Kings chapter 5, I want us to see the clarity with which the Bible speaks about Naaman, the commander of Syria. Syria, a nation attacking God's people. God's enemies, not God's chosen people. Notice what's said in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria... ...was a great man with his master... ...and in high favor. Why was he in high favor? Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. You see how God works through secondary causes? Right? Freely to bring whatever comes to pass... ...even sinful men. Before Naaman was saved... ...he was a mighty man of valor... ...but he was a leper. And if we know the rest of the story... ...we see that even his leprosy was caused by God in order to show us something great, isn't it? Okay. The affairs of nations are determined by God's plan. But the details, all the details of our life, every small detail. We might say, well, the affairs of nations, that's big stuff, right? God certainly cares about that. Well, what about the minute details of our life? What text can we think of that God works even in that and decreed even of that? Even that. We know this text, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Oh, what what wonderful comfort this verse gives His people. Notice what Jesus says. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all what? Numbered. The hairs of your head are numbered numbered. The decree of God determines how many hairs you have on our head. And some of us are less and some are more. Right? Um, sorry, Joe. If Bob was here, I would have pointed at him, but he, he wasn't here. Right? That, that's determined by what's insignificant more than the hairs of our head falling from us. Not many things. What's more insignificant in nature than a sparrow? Not many things it says God has numbered all those things. All the details of life numbered by God. Fourth, all events determined by God. Chance occurrences are determined by God's decree. And I say chance, obviously, loosely. But the things that even the Bible attributes to not being the part of man's free decision. Okay? What, what can we think of? One text should probably jump to mind immediately. <laughs> It, it wasn't Jehu. It wasn't Jehu. It was Jehoshaphat, okay? Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel go out to battle, and you, I think you know the story. I won't read it in detail. It says that there was a soldier, right, that drew his bow at random and let it fly, and it ended up killing Ahab, right? Now, in the text, it doesn't say because God has purposed it, but how do we know God purposed that event? I heard a lot of things, sorry. Yeah, it was prophesied prior God said through his prophet that Ahab's going to die and they're going to be like sheep without a shepherd, okay? Ahab's not going to come back from this battle. And the book of 1 Kings says it's attributed not by a free choice of man, but a random accident almost. But God oversaw that random accident. What, What had to take place for God to oversee that random accident? The training of this man throughout all of history that he knew to aim at the middle of the battlefield in time and not focus his eyes, right? His muscle structure, right? His mental energies. Maybe he didn't have coffee that morning and caused him to aim in a certain way. Everything was determined to make that arrow go where it needed to go. God did all of those things. Secondly, chance occurrences. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, <coughs> I think we know this text, the lot is cast into the lap, okay, I mean in our common vernacular we think of dice, okay, dice are, you know, by their nature supposed to be things of random chance, right, right? That a certain number will come up. Okay? The lot is cast into the lab, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision is from the Lord. Okay, fifthly, not only chance occurrences, not only the affairs of nations, the details of life and good and evil events, but all the free acts of men are determined by God's decree. You say, well, God can determine... Accidental things because he can't overtake my will. Well, the Bible tells us that our free acts are determined by God. In the same chapter, Proverbs chapter 16, I want us to go to two, ver- two texts. Notice verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer from the tongue is from the Lord. Again, I want us to see some things here. Man f- thinks clearly and freely about things. What comes to pass out of that man's mouth is from the Lord. Verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Same thing being said there, right? The Lord establishes his steps. And then if we want to turn just over a few chapters to chapter 21 and verse 1. Even the people in this world that are the most free. Who, who would be the most free kind of person? If you could say, that person has the most freedom in this world. What category? You might give me the wrong answer, but that's okay. The, the rich, the government, though, those are... A king, okay? A king who has sovereign rule over government and all riches of the kingdom. We see here the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it... What? Wherever he will. Wherever he will. Okay. So. Sixthly. And we're going to deal with, this is what we're going to deal with mostly next week. And I'm, I'm actually, yeah, Sixthly, Sinful acts of men. Not just free acts, but even sinful acts of men. And that's where. We rightly start to do some computation in our head at how that's possible. And that's why it's so important to carefully frame this that God is not compelling people to do sinful acts. He doesn't take away the free will of the creature. Men are culpable for their sin. And they really do it. But God works good through that in some way that I can't describe and I can't explain. A text that should constantly come to our mind is Genesis 50, 20. Okay? And I think you all know it. But Genesis 50-20, this is after Joseph, okay? Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, okay? His murder has been falsified. They have told his own father that he's been killed and ravaged by a beast. Imagine the kind of hardship that would endure. But what else did Joseph endure? Imprisonment. For years, years of imprisonment. False accusations from a woman that said that he tried to sexually assault her. His reputation is taken advantage of. He's lost all of his freedom. He's lost his family. He's lost everything. His brothers come to him. His brothers come to him. And they are afraid that he's going to kill them after the father dies. And notice Joseph's wonderful view of God's sovereignty. And how the decree of God helped him to be gracious to his brothers even. Notice, he says to his brothers who did all this to him, as for you, you meant evil. They're not compelled, right? Not compelled by God's hand overtaking their will. They meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. God, I know, John Piper, I can't get it out of my head. I know, I know. He meant it. John Piper meant it, right? He meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, okay? And how much more did he do that through the greater Joseph? As we've already read in Acts chapter 4, right? All the nations of the world, Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, gathered together to crucify the Savior, but it happened according to his predetermined plan and counsel. And To back that up even further, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, where Peter, lest we think again, well, the church might have had bad theology there. I don't think we can accuse Peter of having that on the first Christian sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost. Notice, Peter, in verse 22, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And lastly, which is going to be the transition into next week the salvation and preterition of all people. And I know i tempted to divine that and I probably did that very badly. But the Bible talks about mankind as being one lump in Adam. Okay? And as Romans chapter 9 talks about, if God takes from that one lump of clay and forms some to be vessels of mercy. Right? Turn with me there. We might as well turn there. Notice in... Romans chapter 9. God determines the salvation of man. Notice the question that might be going through your minds in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Notice Paul's answer that's probably not satisfying to us. But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay, notice this language, to make out of the same lump. In Adam, all of us in Adam, the same lump. One vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show His wrath, and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand to glory. The idea of preterition, and there are many godly men, confessional people, that would disagree with me on this. I don't believe that God actively decreed the destruction of these people, but He let them go in their own way. This lump was not a holy lump that was made dis unholy by God's sovereign hand, but rather it was unholy in itself. But God chose to pass over them, leave them to their own destruction, rather than ordain passively that He's going to make them go to destruction. Okay? And that's, a, that's another argument that we could disagree about. But it's not just Romans 9 that talks about this. I'm going to give us two Old Testament passages as well. 1 Samuel 2:25. Now this is a picture of eternal judgment. But temporal judgment we see clearly attributed to the Lord's hand. Notice what's said here. 1 Samuel 2.25 Now this is Eli and his sons. Okay, Now I'm, I'm going to read from verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. How they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, will God God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Proverbs chapter 16, which will be our last text. (coughs) Proverbs chapter 16. And we've been here already, haven't we? This is a wonderful proverb that has the sovereignty of God going throughout it. This is strong, strong language. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble, okay? And as much as these texts and this doctrine might, might cause our mind to be confused at certain times, what I want us to see today is that that is not the intention of Holy Scripture. Scripture, in putting forth these doctrines, in no way means for man to be disheartened, but rather to have great encouragement in the Lord God Almighty, um, As we apply these things, we should know that every event that takes place in our lives, small or great, is because of God's ordaining hand in it. And while we can't see the end from the beginning or the middle, whatever you want to say, we should know that God works all things for our salvation, right? As we already read in Matthew chapter 10, not a hair falls from my head except for with my father, from my father in heaven, okay? He has numbered all the hairs of my head. That should give us great comfort in this world. Because, going back to chapter 2, our God is good and holy and loving and just. That for his people, that he is foreordained from the salvation of the world, all things must work together for our salvation. Now, think about what that means. Every event that takes place in this world, its end is that it must end, it must terminate in one thing. Our salvation. All of God's attributes are at work right now to make you come to that final end. And he is governing all things to make you come to that final end. Because he has decreed that you will make it to that final end. Okay? Do we have any thoughts or questions? Yeah. Mystery of Providence. And, uh, yes. Uh, just how when we begin to draw out what you were saying and applicably into our lives, it just brings about the most amount of praise makes it makes even the very era and time I was born into and the family that I was born to and the the people that I've met on the street for, for ten seconds, all of this God has beginning to work toward my salvation. It just really. Yes. Amen. Amen. Brother. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. And that's why things have to be carefully defined, okay? When we say free will first, I think there's a couple things you have to say which might not be satisfying in five minutes, but we'll come to it next week especially. A couple things we have to consider. When we talk about the free will of the creature, we don't mean libertarian free will or absolute free will, okay? What do I mean by that? I cannot choose by my free will to do anything contrary to my nature, okay? Uh, Just as a turtle we can say has free will. It does not have the free will to fly. Right? Because it's against its nature. As a sinner, I do not... I have the free will to do anything within my nature to do. I don't have the free will to do good. Because I can't do good. And so, in a mysterious way, God doesn't overturn our free will where we're still in our sinful state and we say, I don't want to go to Jesus, but he's making me go. Okay, That's why he makes us a new creation... In the moment of regeneration, our will is transformed that we desire the good. okay, And we go to him. Okay? So, I don't know if that's helpful, but, yeah. He, he doesn't drag us kicking and stra- screaming against our will. He changes our will. Okay? Which is different. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, we're, just like in our first creation, right, it, it, it's not as if our free will was violated when we were created, right? He, he, he changes our will, um, and he doesn't need permission to do so. Just like he doesn't need permission, um, my free will doesn't have to agree with every non-spiritual thing that happens to me, whatever that means, right? I, I don't think the same thing has to be true of spiritual things either. God is free to work in our hearts to do Whatever he pleases. And the fact that we really are new creations in Christ at the moment of our regeneration. That the old really did pass away. Right? It's not as if there's just a new principle put into my heart. Okay? I really am new in him. I really am a new creation. And that's why I have a new will. Yes. To try. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and again with this, something that we always have to keep in mind, just like with the Trinity, okay, that the doctrines we're discussing are carefully formulated to guard mystery, okay. God has not given us to know the exact outworkings of this... ...or how they work mechanically, so to speak, in our lives. How free will is preserved and how... ...but the Bible tells us that it is. Okay? So, these are supposed to be very carefully formulated things... ...to protect the mystery that we wouldn't get rid of man's culpability... Okay, ...and our guiltiness for our sin. okay, And that God would have all the glory for our salvation... ...and yet, maintaining the fact that it's certainly true... that. From God and through God and to God are all things. Okay, And he works all things for the good of his people and for his own glory. That's what we know. And these doctrines are meant to guard that mystery. And when we start to go and try to peek behind the curtain and say, well, it's not necessarily satisfying to me. I need to know exactly how this works. That's where we get into trouble here. This is meant to guard the boundaries of orthodoxy here. God who all things, but I am culpable for my own sin. All right, Brother. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, it, 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 that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Father we come before you and we thank you God that uh, God you're good you're merciful and God you you desire the best possible thing to happen in this world and you've decreed all things that come to pass for your own glory and for your people's good and I pray that we'd rest in that fact um, and that we would know that everything that happens today in our marriages, in our households, in our families, at our workplace. Everything that happens, God, um, is according to your sovereign plan. And although we don't understand it and we're not meant to understand it, God, we thank you for giving us in your word the ability to at least apprehend it and place our hope in the fact that our good God is doing everything according to the counsel of his will. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.